chapter 3. Going to be looking at verses 13 to 18. How many of you looked and saw the title of the message in your bulletin? How to suffer well. How many are excited? I'm sure for most of us, the thought that comes to mind is, uh, no thanks. I'd rather not be an expert in suffering. I'd like to stay as ignorant as possible on that subject. Thank you very much. Well, here's the deal. Raise your hand if you currently reside on the planet. Some of you are pointing at each other going, I don't know about that guy. If you're currently living on this planet, well, for, for argument's sake, let's say everybody, okay? If you're currently a resident of this world, Jesus left you a message. John chapter 16, verse 33. By the way, on the evening before he suffered, he said, in this world, you will have tribulation, trouble, suffering. All of the residents on this fallen ball of dirt will sooner or later suffer. But here's the thing. You don't have to suffer badly. You don't have to suffer as those who have no hope. The Bible makes a very clear delineation between those who suffer with hope and those who suffer as though they have no hope. I just read to you that part that's probably the most memorable of John 16.33, right? In the world you will have tribulation. I didn't read you the whole verse. Want to hear the whole verse? Yeah? Okay. I'm going to read you the whole verse and notice the bookends, the, the, the tribulation parts in the middle. Notice what it's surrounded by. Hope and peace. Listen. John 16.33, the, the evening that Jesus was betrayed, he said, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So do you see that right away... Suffering is a required course. Nobody gets out of this world without going through it. It's required. It's right in the middle of that. But do you see that it's bookended? It's mingled. It should be mingled with peace and with joy. He says, be of good cheer. Suffering is a part of life. And we get to choose whether we're going to suffer badly or suffer well. Today, Peter teaches us how to suffer well. Seems to me that there are two things as we look through the scripture this morning, verses 13 through 18. Two things that Peter directs us in regards to suffering. The first one I think you'll like. You ready? First one is how to reduce your suffering. Anybody opposed? Everybody agree? Okay. Nobody's opposed to reducing your suffering. The second one, though. And it's going to be more of the bulk of our time is how to redeem your suffering. We're going to break that one down a bit more. First, how to reduce your suffering. Here's what I mean. The needless part. The part that you actually don't necessarily have to suffer. If you are not opposed to reducing your suffering, I have a quick answer for you. Way to do it. Quit doing bad. Start doing good. He is talking. Peter's talking to 
the folks who are being persecuted. You've got to remember that. And look what he says, verse 13. <laughs> and who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? And in verse 17, he's going to say, um, for it's better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. I, I put those things together and it seems to me one of the things that Peter's saying, you have to dig it out a little bit, but is this. Chances are someone in the room, maybe all of us in the room, probably all of us in the room. Your sum of your suffering is needless. It's pointless. You guys heard that really rude joke? It's like, why does a pastor know a rude joke? I don't know, but I do. What, what's the quickest way to lose 15 pounds of ugly fat? Cut off your head? Don't say that to anyone. It's a, you know, hey, I go to Calvary Chapel. Let me tell you a joke. I don't know why. Because I'm twisted, I guess it made me this. This made me think of that. There's, there's a way that you can lose a big chunk of ugly, needless suffering. That's self-inflicted. Quit doing bad. Start doing good. That's the context that we have that we came from. Look at verse 10. We'll just kind of get a running start this morning. He says, remember this? This was from last week. He who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. And he says, hey, uh, you might want to start getting your tongue in check, right? They came with a cage, put it in there. He let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. That's the central kind of idea, which is in two words, repent means to turn and replace. Don't just repent and say, I'm sorry I did that. Um, but replace with something good. Let him return away from evil and, and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Look at verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Verse 13, our text this morning. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? You see what he's saying is, look, some of your suffering might be self-inflicted. Might be because you're not controlling your tongue. You're not repenting and replacing. You're not seeking after peace. You're not going after pursuing peace. He says your life could be less suffering if, if you do these things. Uh, and, and put that in context with verse 17 again. Down at the end it says, For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. I think Peter's saying, look, you can reduce some of your suffering just by repenting of sin and replacing it with good. Maybe I know it's obvious, but maybe that's the application for some of us this morning. Right out of the box, maybe the application is you want to suffer less. How much of your suffering is self-inflicted? Needless, pointless. It actually has no redeeming qualities because it's not it was never in the Lord's will for you. But you chose it because of choosing evil instead of good. So he says, verse 13, and who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? Peter says, in one sense, look, nobody can touch you. If you become a follower of what is good, um, who is goodness personified? Jesus, right? I'm not raising my hand as if it's me. Jesus. 
is goodness personified, right? If you become followers of him who is good, um, I'm going somewhere here. Follow with me if you can. Peter was a follower of he who was good, right? Peter was literally physically a member of that ragtag motley crew called the 12, the dirty dozen. (laughs) They spent three and a half years with him. Don't you think? I mean, this guy was handy to have around. I mean, you need to pay taxes. Yeah, he'll go and get from coin from a fish. Pay your taxes. You in a place where there's not enough food. He makes he feeds five thousand with just a, a, a few fish and a few loaves. Don't you think that about the twentieth time that Jesus just saved the day, that some of these guys, Peter included, got this kind of feeling like who's going to harm us? Who can harm us as we're followers of the Him who is good? That, that sort of air of invincibility, at least at times, don't you think? I mean, don't you think they could say to each other, hey, if God is with us, and he is, <laughs> who could be against us? Nobody's going to touch us. I, I'm sure that's why Peter, when he got to the Garden of Gethsemane, pulls out his sword. It's like, all right, Lord, it's you and me against all these guys. It's because... There was an air of invincibility as they were following him who was good. The word followers there is mimetes. It's where we get the word mimic. It means to mimic. It means to, to watch someone and then do what they do, right? Here's my point. A little bit winding, but here's where I'm going. We have the same privilege that, that Peter had. We can follow him who does good, meaning we can watch him. Mimic him. We can, as I follow Jesus, I keep my eyes on him and I do what I see him doing. There is in one sense, I think there should be, if you understand what I mean, a sense of invincibility. Meaning, who's going to harm me if God doesn't allow them to? Who's going to touch me? I mean, and you look at Peter and you look especially at Paul. You go through the list of all the stuff that they tried to do to him, the stuff that they did to him, and he's still what we call him the ever-ready bunny of the New Testament. See, but please understand, though, I don't think, I'm definitely not talking about always physical invincibility, but there's definitely at your disposal uh, a, a real invincibility. Here's what I mean. Matthew 10, if you want to turn there, you can. Remember that Jesus said, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both the soul and body in hell. The idea being, look, with man, the the worst a guy can do to you, whether whether it's uh, someone in government who has the the power to to kill you if if things go much uh, badly over the next few years. The worst that a man can do to you is cause you to stop breathing, your heart to stop beating. And then you're in heaven with Jesus. Oh, what a shame. Right now I get to go to, to be in heaven and live forever. What I'm getting at is there's there's there should be a sense of fearlessness. You can have fearlessness and you can reduce your needless suffering just by becoming a follower of him who is good, imitating Christ. OK, that is 
as quickly as I know how, how to reduce your suffering and to, to live fearless. And we're going to see more of that as we go. Okay, how to reduce your suffering. Next, this whole next section, uh, the rest of the time today, will be how to redeem your suffering. Because once you quit doing that which is evil and you start doing that which is good, once you begin to, to become a follower, mimic Jesus, there's still going to be suffering. Sorry. There is. But verse 14, look at it. First Peter 3, verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. You Bible scholars, what's the word blessed mean? Happy. It's the same word you see in Matthew chapter 5, right? Happy are they. Happy are they. It's the, the Beatitudes, right? Happy are they. Happy are they. And then Jesus says this crazy thing. Matthew 5. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Happy are those who are persecuted. For righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> and he goes on. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. So they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then he goes on to say, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Again. He keeps talking about being salty and being light in darkness. Right after he talks about being persecuted. And we're going to see that those are tied together this morning. But here's where we're going. Suffering is a required course. If you live on the planet, it's a required course. Misery is optional. You see the difference? Suffering is a required course, but misery is optional. Look at verse 17 if you want to have your mind blown a little bit, if you haven't thought about this before. Look at verse 14, 17, doesn't it say it's better to suffer for righteousness if it is the will of God than to suffer for unrighteousness? If you thought about this, that means sometimes it's the will of God for us to suffer. There's some people, there's some churches that spend an inordinate amount of time arguing against this very verse. God never wants you to suffer. He doesn't. He doesn't want you to have sickness. He always wants you to be rich. Wait, it says if it is the will of God, that means clearly that there are times when it is the will of God to suffer. Now, that makes you go, wait a second. We only have two choices with that, with that truth that confronts us either. That means that God is as capricious as people say. Some people say that he is. He doesn't care. He's, he's happy to see you suffer. It either means that or it means this. God has a way of redeeming suffering. He has a way of using suffering to a greater good. And y'all. That is what he does. That's what he does. He takes suffering and turns it into glory. All throughout this epistle, first Peter chapter or first Peter. He takes rejection, turns it into redemption. Isn't that what he did on the cross? He takes abuse, turns it into atonement. And if you're suffering 
And it's not because of something stupid you've done on your own. That's what he wants to do with you. Maybe even if it is something stupid you've done on your own. He has this amazing way of taking our messes, turning them into masterpieces, taking rejection, turning into redemption. We have been talking. How many of you have been with us? We've been through the whole winsome evangelism series. Okay. Talking a lot about being winsome Christians, right? Living your life beautifully in front of the the people who want you to fail. Right. Have you noticed, though? That this winsome evangelism series is right in the book of First Peter, which is all about persecution. Right? We want it to be, you know, winsome evangelism right in the midst of uh, lifestyles of the rich and famous. But it's winsome evangelism in the midst of persecution. It's in the context of rejection and suffering. You could look at these verses, verses 13 through 18. Kind of like the troubleshooting guide. You know how you have a uh, manual of something and uh, first part tells you how to put it together. Second part maybe tells you how to use it. And at the back it says troubleshooting. (laughs) This is kind of these verses are kind of like the troubleshooting guide, meaning, hey, I just I lived a winsome life in front of that guy. This is how he treats me. This is this is what to do when that person doesn't fall at your feet and say, lead me to your Jesus. This is what you do. You do what Jesus did. Turn suffering into glory. So if you've been paying attention on the winsome series, this this is what you do when you're a Christian worker and you're a winsome worker. And you get the stick in the eye. This is what you do when you're a winsome student or a servant and you're treated poorly. This is what you do when you are a winsome citizen and It doesn't work out the way you hoped it would. This is what you do when you're a winsome spouse and it doesn't seem to be working. Again, no, I've said it over and over again. I'll probably just keep saying it. God takes the long view of things, right? But over and over again, we see he is able and willing to take that suffering that you're you're dealing with right now and redeem it. Turn it into something worthwhile. Turn it into something beautiful. Okay, you guys, if you're willing, I don't if you're not willing, please don't stand up and walk out because that would be embarrassing. But if you're willing, I think he tells us here, this is how you can redeem your suffering. Make it actually count for something because you're going to suffer anyway. Three things. Ready? Verses 14 and 15 or the verses 14 and the first part of 15, I should say. Write down this word. This phrase, be steady. We'll explain that. The last half of 15, write down this word, be ready. And all of verse 16, be clear. If you want to redeem your suffering, be steady, be ready, and be clear. Here we go. First, be steady. Look at the middle of verse 14. He says, and do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. First thing Peter says, look, in the midst of your trouble, your persecution, in our vernacular, don't freak out. Be steady. He says, do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. The word afraid there and threats is from the same Greek word, phobos. It it means terror. So really, verse 14 could, could go like this. And do not be terrified by their terrorism. 
nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. The word troubled there is agitated. It keeps coming back to this thought, you guys. We've mentioned it, I think, with winsome spouses and some other times. That beauty of tranquility in the midst of chaos. Because that's what he says. Look, don't be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify. It's the same place we get the word sanctuary. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. There's a beauty of fearless tranquility in the midst of persecution, chaos, all of it. Let me ask you, how much would the redemption story, the redemption story, Jesus story, how much would it lose if Jesus is before the high priest and going, please don't hurt me. I'm freaking out. (laughs) It's like, why are we here? If that's the case, there's a beauty that's it's courage. It's quietness. You think about Jesus in the boat while the, while the storm's raging, right? You think about Jesus as a sheep before its shears, not saying a word as they're accusing him, as they're throwing barbs at him, as they're whipping his back. There's that beauty, that bravery, that courage that's not freaking out. Again, the idea is when you're facing persecution in particular, but I think trouble of any kind, guys, that's when the spotlight is on you. That is when the spotlight is on you. How many of you have read the book, uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs or, or know about it? Okay? If you haven't read it or if you maybe need a refresher, check that book out. It goes throughout history and highlights some of the amazing stories of people who went to their deaths serving their king, Jesus. And when you look at it, some of it is just mind-boggling from our perspective. Our, our comfortable, everything pretty much goes the way we kind of want it in general compared to that perspective. See guys that are being burned at the stake and they're singing praise songs? You're like, that's, that's otherworldly. That can't be. Well, that's kind of the point. People singing unto God while wicked men are trying to terrorize them. They're not terrorized by their terrorism. Now, if you're like me, your first thought goes, how does that happen? I mean, if you've thought like I have, that that's a potentiality for our, our yeah, I hope that's a word, for, for our nation. It's a potentiality that there could come a time when we're actually called to stand up or die, or stand up and die. Then you're like, how, how does that work? How do those people get that brave? Circle right down, verse 15. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. It says, don't be afraid, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Here's where he's quoting from Isaiah chapter eight. Isaiah eight, verse 12 says, do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But listen to this. This is uh, Isaiah eight thirteen. The Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow, meaning set apart, sanctify. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Verse 14. He will be as a sanctuary. Here's my point. Whenever you see those guys that are, you, know, you read about these guys that are being burnt at the stake and they're singing praise songs, it's because they're in their sanctuary. That's where they are. The word sanctify means to set apart. It means to realize that your God is different than every other being in the universe. Peter's saying, set apart the Lord from all others. 
every other person in that situation pretty much will leave you, forsake you. Ask Paul. But the Lord will not leave you nor forsake you. Peter experienced this kind of amazing peace and joy in the midst of it. When he was in jail, the, the, the stories of that. Paul especially experienced this. Where he, how many times was this guy in and out of jail? Stoned, um, stoned in the, the biblical way. <laughs> how many times was shipwrecked? You go through the list of all the things that this guy endured. Again, we call him the, the ever-ready bunny. He was unstoppable because, look at verse 13 and 14, and tell me that Paul wasn't 13 and 14 personified. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed and do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Paul was the guy that they stoned him to death and he got up and wiped himself off and walked right back into the city. Okay, He's like, "Uh, who's going to harm me? Pretty much invincible as long as God wants me to be that way. But here's the thing. If you follow Paul all the way through his life, you remember there was actually a couple times, though, when it got really hard. Two, two times come to mind in particular. If you go to, I think it's Acts 23. You see that there was a time right before he, he was facing the, the Sanhedrin, I think. When the idea is that he's discouraged and it says that the Lord came and stood by him. And ministered to him. Said, look, dude, you're going. Okay, didn't say dude. Um, <laughs> you're going to Rome and you're going to represent me. The Lord comforted him just as Joe spoke. It occurs to me again, the Lord comforts those so that they can comfort others. But it starts with the Lord comforting. The idea is make him your sanctuary. Um, the other time that I can remember Paul going through this, Second Timothy, you guys remember he's writing to his protege, his, his, his young apprentice. This is the last book that we know of that that Peter or Paul writes. And this is right before he goes and loses his head. Literally, Second Timothy 4.16 reads this way. Listen, at my first answer, that is the first time I was called up before the authorities and given the chance to speak my case. At that time, no man stood with me. Anybody here feel all alone? Like there's nobody willing to stand with me with what I'm facing. No man stood with me, but all men forsook me. But he says, I pray that God, that that it may not be laid to their charge. Here's the next verse. Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me. There's times when Paul, Paul was all about verses 13 and 14, unstoppable. But there was times when it was scary and hard. And that was when he found the Lord being his sanctuary. It's interesting to me. I'm finding this more and more as I'm going through uh, my quiet time this morning. I'm reading about Joseph and he he ministers to the butler and the baker. Remember, uh, they, they have a dream and they're, they're like, what's this mean? Well, the butler is like, hey, this is good news for the baker. Mm, awkward. <laughs> but he says to the butler, hey, will you just do me a favor since, you know, I kind of did the dream for you. Will you just tell somebody that, so that I can get out of here? But I says, yeah, sure thing. I'll do it. Forgets all about him. Leaves him, forsakes him, forgets him. But you see that Joseph made the Lord his sanctuary and God was actually up to something. That's the point. I just I love it when 
when I can continue to see these things um, brought to me, because the Lord repeats himself because he knows I'm a little bit thick, a little bit dense. Maybe you have been let down like Joseph or like Paul. Somebody's let you down or left, left you for dead, cut you loose, abandoned you. Jesus is different. Sanctify him. Understand that he's different than anybody else in the world, anybody else in the, in the universe. Make him your sanctuary. I promise you that'll make you fearless. That will steady you. The first thing, if you want to redeem your, your suffering, is to be steady. It only happens if you are willing to sanctify him. Make him your sanctuary or maybe ask him to bring the sanctuary to you into your prison cell. Because that's what Paul did. That's what Peter did. That's what Joseph did. Now, you're like, OK, I get it. I like that idea. But how do you do it practically? I love this because this is super easy. Anybody in the room can do this. You ready? How do you sanctify him in your heart? How do you bring, make, even in your circumstances right now, how do you make that a sanctuary? Well, worship. Worship him. Remind yourself of his greatness, of his goodness. And more than that, his love for you. We sang it, we sang this morning, how great is our God. But then right after that, we sang, your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens. He's an awesome God, but if he doesn't like me, that doesn't help me a whole lot. <laughs> but if he's an awesome God and he loves me, that changes everything. You guys see what I'm, where I'm going with this? Whatever prison you're in this morning, invite him in. That's what he did with Paul. He stood right beside him. Said, I'm here. I'll never leave you, nor forsake you. Make him your sanctuary. And you can do it as simply as worship. How great is our God. How great thou art. Jesus Messiah, the rescue for sinners. Mighty to save. All of them. Invite him into yourself. He'll strengthen you. Have your own private worship service. I, th I think that's the first step in redeeming your suffering. Making your sanctuary. Last petition before we go on to the next thing. Matter of fact, everybody, you can close your eyes. You don't have to. Whatever. I don't care. Again, who's suffering? Who's going through something right now? Can I encourage you? This is the time that you should be worshiping him more than ever. Because you need it. You need to understand how big he is and how much he loves you. The devil will tell you not to worship him. Don't buy that. Worship him. In spirit and in truth. Okay? I think, honestly, that's the first step in redeeming the suffering. Next. So, he says first, be steady. Next. Be ready. Look at it. Uh, end of verse 14, I think. Or no, 15. I lost my track. He says, and always, that is perpetually, incessantly, be ready. That means prepared, ready at hand. To give a defense. Always be ready to give a defense. Now, the word defense is the word apologia. It's where we get the word apology, but in Christian terms, it's much more easier understood this way. It's where we get the word apologetics, which means to give a reasonable answer. Um, this doesn't mean to apologize in this context. What it's saying is give a reason for why people see what they see in you. Um, 
It's a legal word, apologia. It was used in court for when one finally gets to present his own case in court. Again, that's what that's what Paul did, right? He got several opportunities to present his case. Um, it's a reason statement or argument. Have you thought about how all the places where Paul gave his apologia, his reason defense, happened in the Sanhedrin, happened before Festus, uh, Agrippa, Drusilla. We have no reason to doubt that it happened before Caesar as well. And Paul is an excellent example because in all of those cases, he used the defense stand as a bully pulpit. Every single one of those, you're looking like, oh man, that guy's he's on fire. He's not really defending himself all that much. He keeps talking about Jesus. Y'all, if you ha- if you want to redeem your suffering, use that attention that you're getting as a bully pulpit. Let me say it again. We've said it a few times. Lord, in the darkest hour, the darker it gets the more I want to shine. Do you guys see what Peter is saying? And what he's getting at, I think, is this. Look, everybody's watching you suffer bankruptcy or sickness or heartache. Everybody's watching you. Don't waste it. Redeem it. Give it value. Give it worth. People are watching you suffer. If you cling to God, if you sanctify him in your heart, you will have this amazing peace in the midst of chaos and it'll be beautiful. And people will go, what's going on there? And that's when you better be ready. What a waste for people to say, hey, what's going on with you? That's awesome. How you're and you're like, I don't know. (laughs) He's missed your opportunity again. This comes back to not cold calls, right? Winsome evangelism isn't necessarily knocking on a door. Although it's an awesome gift, I, I never want to discount that. But it's not, it's not what we're talking about here is when you do right, you do well, and people put, put, slam the door in your face, and then you do right and do well some more, and they're like, what is the deal with you? Oh, well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> that is winsome evangelism. And Peter says, be ready. Be ready for when this, this winsome uh, conduct of yours begins to pay off. When they ask, why do you cope so well? That's when you be ready. He says, be ready to give a defense and answer. He says to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. I love that. Did you notice that Peter does not say, hey, be ready in case someone maybe asks you. It says, be ready when they ask you. To everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope. It doesn't sound like he's talking about a small, maybe sort of harvest. He's saying, look, if you sanctify the Lord God in your heart, you worship him, you cling to him. You're going to have that that response that's good and right and proper and joyful. And people are going to ask you. So be ready because it's coming. Not cold calls. This says to me again, if we are willing, every suffering is a stage, meaning a spotlight. Every rejection story is a redemption story in the making. Every mistreatment is a microphone. Every shortfall and trial becomes a show and tell. 
Because people are watching. Now, how do we apply this concept? Well, again, I think it can be pretty, pretty uh, easy to identify. Have you put into words, even in your head, why you in your particular suffering right now would have hope? Have you put any thought into if somebody asked me why I'm joyful and maybe you're like, well, I haven't been joyful. That's a problem. Okay, go back to step one. But if you're on step two, have you put any thought into what would I say if somebody asked me why I'm so different than they are in my bankruptcy versus theirs? And and what's odd to me is that this actually, I think you'll find this helps you even unexpectedly. Um, The application, for lack of a better thing, is to to put it, uh, to get into the word. Um, First one is, if you want to be steady, worship. If you want to be ready, get into the word. Let me give you a real life example. Someone were to ask me how I cope with, how Lisa and I cope with the, this autism that's part of our family. Statistics, you look at them, the majority of people that have autism in their family, the, the, the marriages disintegrate. People were to ask me, how is it that you're, you seem so happy and you guys are, you know, you're weird, but you're relatively together. <laughs> well, I, I would say, uh, well, the scripture declares to me, that there's coming a day when there's no more sorrow, no more pain, no corruption in bodies, meaning all the brains are going to work perfectly. Which, do the math, that means I'm going to have a conversation with him. That means we're going to laugh and we're going to goof off and we're going to talk about all the things that I'm going to, I'm going to understand because I see it in him. I, I see his, uh, his sense of humor, his mischievous. You guys see that in him too and know but he's going to be able to put words to it. What, what reason do I have for the hope that's in me? It's that. Maybe you're suffering in finances. I challenge you this week to prepare your defense, meaning your apologia. Meaning someone comes to you and says, okay, how come you're different than me? Well, let's see. Jesus said that... He has a father that I have a father that feeds the birds of the air. And he clothes the lilies of the field and he loves me a lot more than that. That's why I have hope. I challenge you to to prepare your apologia this week so that you'll be ready to redeem that suffering, to make it worth something to those people who are are, are watching you. Now, maybe a word of caution. Jesus also says, look, don't worry about what you're going to say specifically, right? When, when you are called up before the, the Sanhedrin or all those folks, don't, don't spend a lot of time as far as necessarily writing down every single word. But here he says, have, have a defense ready. And what I think that means is fill your mind with the word. Fill your mind with the word specifically about your circumstances. Okay, uh, finances. This is what the word says. These are the things that that I can put my hope in. This is what I'm going to tell people in general. And then once your head is filled with the scripture, then let the Holy Spirit pick and choose which one to share in your defense. Okay. All right. Oh, one thing more more before we leave this this topic. Notice those last few words of that verse says with meekness and fear. It literally means gentleness and respect. (laughs) 
should go without saying, but meaning someone comes to you and says, hey, how come you're dealing so well with this? Um, You don't say, well, because I'm going to heaven and you're not. (laughs) Not winsome, not winsome. So have your defense ready and present it with meekness and fear. The same winsome things that we've been talking about for so long. Okay. Always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So be steady, be ready, and lastly, be clear. As in a clear conscience. Have a clear conscience. Verse 16. Having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, and they will... Those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed, for it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Your conscience. Try to think of the quickest way to explain it. It's like your GPS system. It's it's what helps you to to decipher from right and wrong. It's the one that it's the thing in you that God gives everyone, even unbelievers, that sense of right and wrong, right? Understand that the conscience is not the same as the Holy Spirit, right? Think about this. The Holy Spirit, if you ignore him for lots and lots of time, he can be grieved, it says, and he may up and leave, right? Um, but he can't be ruined. But your GPS, your conscience, can actually be ruined. You can end up worse than you were before, If you ignore your GPS, your conscience, you can actually ruin that thing. The Bible says that a conscience can be hardened. It can be seared to where it's unusable. If the conscience is something that as you feed it with the word and you do it, you do, you you pay attention to it. It gets better and better and more refined and more tuned. Right. But if you ignore it, the Bible says, look, you can make it worse and worse and worse to where you can get to where you think you're doing right. And you're completely doing wrong. That is the conscience, your GPS, right? You can you can get so messed up by not following your conscience that you can be bulletproof to the truth. Meaning the truth can't even get to you because you have ignored your conscience so long. Look, Peter says. If you want to redeem your suffering. You're going to suffer anyway. If you want to actually make it valuable, make it impactful for something in, in eternity. The third thing besides being steady and being ready is you've got to have a clear conscience. Be clear. Have a good conscience. Verse 16. Having a good conscience that when you, they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. It's the same thing we've been saying. Look, when they call you, Christian, when they call you homophobe, when they call you bigot, when they call you hypocrite, Peter says, don't let them be right. Let your conduct, your conscience be so in tune, so refined that you're that you're walking well. That as even as the words come out of their mouth, they even though they won't admit it, they're like, <clears throat> I hate that guy because he's good, but I don't want to admit that. Have your conduct, your walk be so winsome that their dead consciences may begin to stir. Their GPS that's all out of whack might go, what was that? 
That's the idea. <laughs> Again, the Lord underlined this with me this morning. You guys remember Joseph Brothers? He's now the... Uh, he's followed his conscience and he's, he's served people as best he knows. He's lived a winsome life, obeyed. Now he's the right-hand guy of the Pharaoh, right? And his brothers come and they, uh, they need food. He sends them off on the, uh, after their first visit with a bunch of unexpected gold in their sacks. Do you guys remember how they reacted when they saw it? <gasps> this is the worst thing in the world. They were so upset that there was gold in their sacks. Any of you would have a problem with that? If you, 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 went, you went home today and your car was filled with gold. The reason was because they felt guilty for something they had done years and years ago. Their consciences weren't clean. And so they were so messed up that they assumed. Let me put it this way. A conscience that's guilty can turn even a blessing into a cursing. So. Peter says, look, if you want to redeem the suffering, you're going to need a good conscience. A conscience is like a window. Especially a window uh, to the gospel. If my conscience is clean, especially if I'm suffering and my conscience is still clean and you can see through me and see, see what Jesus is doing in my life. That's awesome. But if instead I'm, I'm hindered by my conscience, it's like fuzzy and dirty and you can't really see all that well through it. A conscience, if it's clean, is a beautiful thing to behold through. If it's dirty, people aren't going to see the beauty of forgiveness and redemption that God is trying to offer to those around you. Um, not to get in your business. Well, actually, that's what I do. I wonder how many of us want to witness. We want to evangelize. Whether it's our gift or not, we, we want to win souls. But we're hindered by our conscience. I wonder how many of us have had the thought, how can I speak of a changed life when my life isn't changed in this area? How do you, application, please, how do you apply this? How do you, how do you clean up the window? First John 1, 9. First John 1, 9 is the window washer of your soul. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to not only forgive us our sins, but to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. You can have a clear conscience so that you can be used. That window can be clean for those around you who are desperately looking for someone who would forgive them. Verse 18, as we close, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. <laughs> We're going to exposit this more on Sunday. But it definitely belongs in this text, which is the whole thing. The whole concept is this. Maybe this morning when I started talking about uh, being willing to suffer and redeeming suffering, you're like, no, thanks. I'm out. Well, look at verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. He didn't deserve it. And here's why. 
This was the goal that he had in mind. This was the, the, the prize that he was running after, according to Hebrews 11. That he might bring us to God. You see it? Suffering can be redemptive. Peter brings us back to the one who suffered the most and suffered the best. Peter says, and, and why did he do it? That he might bring us to God. There's the pattern that we're supposed to jump in to. Let me, if, if nothing else, if you haven't received anything else this morning, if you're suffering, why not ask God this question? Lord, who around me do you have your sights set on? Who around me is watching me to see how I deal with this suffering if I suffer well or suffer badly? Who around me is looking to see if there's a real God who really does bring comfort? Peter says, now's your chance to shine. If you suffer well, you can bring that person to God. And in summary, here's how you do it. Be steady. How do you do that? I think the quickest way to say it is worship. Have your own personal church service. Worship in the midst of the suffering. Be ready. That is, prepare your, you know, again, not to the detail, but, but fill your mind with things that, hey, if somebody asked me why I would, why I have this hope, what would I say? So be steady, be ready. And lastly, be clear. Be clear your conscience. Have your walk be winsome. Don't, don't be hindered by a guilty conscience. The Lord wants to use you. He wants to use every single one of us. There's plenty of suffering to go around, don't you think? Either God's up to something or He's totally uninterested. I think he's up to something. Are you willing to let your suffering be redeemed into something beautiful? Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you. Thank you for your goodness and your graciousness. I thank you for the challenge that you give us. I thank you, Lord, that you don't sugarcoat it. Lord, um, that there's so much love and redemption in this story that you don't need to manufacture anything. Thank you, Lord, that... Um, you don't promise us that things are going to be rosy so that we would be supremely disappointed. But instead, Lord, you, you tell us to keep our eyes on the prize and you tell us to uh, to look around to see who we might want to who you might want to bring to heaven with us. Help us, Lord, to suffer well. Help us, Lord, not to suffer. Help us to not suffer needlessly because of our own stupidity or rebellion. But help us, Lord, when we're called to suffer, to suffer well, that it might be redeemed for your purposes in Jesus' name. Amen.